Life's Third Act is a podcast dedicated to helping you get the most out of your retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, attorney CPA Joe Cordell features guests each week to discuss prominent topics for those over 55. Here's attorney CPA Joe Cordell. Welcome to another episode of Life's Third Act. We talk a lot about aging on this show, and we see it as a a wonderful opportunity. Uh, And we we want to provide you with ideas and information about how to make this, we call it life's third act for a reason, to make this long period of time the absolute best of your life. And to do that well, we have to turn to experts, people who focus on these very questions and who are more qualified than we, I have to concede, (laughs) uh, to provide assistance and information and suggestions and leave it to Jill to find somebody who is especially authoritative in this field, a doctor, a psychologist, a doctor, no less, right? Do you want to give a formal introduction to our guest? I would love to. I'm so excited about this guest. We have Dr. Mary Fled. She's a clinical psychologist, retired, um, the author of the book series, Aging with Finesse. I love that title. And she's also the founder of The Five Pillars of Aging. And we might add, a former stand-up comedian. Huh. So she's going to have to tell us some jokes and make us laugh. Welcome, Dr. Mary. Thanks, Jill. Nice to be on the program. So that's a diverse set of skills. I would say so. Yeah. I've never heard of all of those skills grouped together before. Have you? No, no. And and I think I would say that, though, that you have ch- chosen to work in this field at a time that is especially opportune. Not that that was your motivation, but it's a need. It's a substantial need, right? Demographically. I'm smiling because there are so many ways to talk about this. You know, I think we're called to the work that we do. Anyway, those of us that have passion and find purpose and meaning in the work that we do. And honestly, I don't know that I had any choice but to end up being a psychologist On my way to getting licensed, however, I spent 10 years doing estate planning. And one of the things that I really, really looked forward to in chatting with you today was to talk about how this notion of getting our things organized really takes precedent over getting ourselves organized. One of the challenges, and I think one of the beauties of having something like estate planning is that you can just put out on paper exactly what you want to have done with your stuff as a really wonderful strategy to manage anxiety and frustration and fear. And it gives some semblance of control. Uh, one, One of the clients that I happened to work with was a woman, this was back in the day. So she would bring in her Polaroids. We had a huge three ring notebook and she would take pictures of all her tangible personal property. And she almost once a month, she would come in and we'd swap out the pictures for whoever was in favor that month. And it just made doing the paperwork a little bit easier. Huh. I have found that people do that also, though, with their fears. One of the advantages of working with me or with any aging specialist, and this can be in social work or psychology or even a spiritual director, is that we'll help you sort out your stuff and we'll help you come to terms 
with what makes life richer and what scares you and maybe come up with some strategies for how to manage that. And the difference that I bring to my work is I just bring a little bit more humor maybe than the most typical therapist out there. Strong roots are essential for a healthy tree, especially your family tree. That's why you work hard to take care of your family every day. At Tucker Allen, we know that taking care of your family means planning for the future. Our team provides personalized estate planning to help you protect your family, your legacy, and your future. From wills and trusts to long-term care and estate planning. Count on Tucker Allen. Personalized estate planning made simple. Well, it's interesting. Estate planning as therapy. Uh, I've Who never would have thought, thought that? I uh, know. I'm going to have to start suggesting that. <laughs> Again, I I'm, I will bring it into some real topics. I, I worked for the State Bar of California for five years, and we would do an annual um, conference. And I staffed uh, the Estate Planning and Trust Committee, and, and one of our speakers was a wonderful gentleman from one of the finest law firms in Los Angeles who was talking to attorneys about how to talk to people about dying, because it's not something we are comfortable discussing. So... In learning, and I don't know if you've had this experience in your practice, but people don't come typically to an estate planning attorney to discuss the fears of loss of life. They discuss what we're going to do with the things and how to continue and create a legacy. Well, one of my five pillars is creating a legacy of values because values and beliefs are equally important to make sure that we pass down to our decedents. Yeah, yeah. And for some people, that's far and away the most important thing. You know, and they and they like to to create archives of their lives and their experiences mm-hmm. and and as you say, their values. Uh, I can see where, you know, kind of planning for your death includes a lot more than simply bequesting the contents of your bank account. So you you have though this this I think it's your own sort of a formulation uh, of aging, and you taught the five pillars of aging. Can you talk about what those are? Absolutely. Uh, the, the acronym is LEASE, and I talk about renewing your lease on life. So the first pillar is creating a legacy of values and doing that with intention, sitting down and saying, you know, what is it that matters to me and why should that be something that I make sure that my children and grandchildren, the community I live in and the people I associate with are aware of. The second one is adaptation and accommodation. We have to learn how to adapt our thinking and our goals as we get older, but we also have to make accommodations. So we see that with, especially nowadays with people aging in place. There are fewer and fewer places that we can retire to. And so figuring out what is going to make us happy, what is our home? What what is it that brings me a sense of joy and comfort and security? And where can I find that place? So that's an adaptation and accommodation. The third is staying engaged. And, And this is the one I think most of your listeners are probably very familiar with. It's cognitive engagement. Keep your mind going physical engagement, eat the right foods, exercise, do all the basics. Sure. Absolutely. Um, The fourth pillar is a spiritual pillar. This is one where we really talk about exploring what purpose and meaning is as we get to this point in life. 
one of the things you said in the introduction that really touched me is that we have this elongated expanse now. We don't just die at 70. That's what we used to do. Now we wait until we're 80 or 90. Well, there's a lot of time to come to terms with regrets, with loss, and to even take on new ways of being. So having purpose and meaning, particularly in a culture that doesn't actually value aging adults, yeah. is really challenging. And then the very last pillar is what I call emotional economics. And this is about being enough and defining enough. You know, we spend so much time talking about investing in, in money, but we don't talk about investing in our self-worth. And that's knowing, true. Knowing that I am enough is something that's perhaps more common for women than it is for men. At least that's been my experience so far. But also knowing what's good enough, deciding what I can settle for and not having that be a negative word for people who maybe grew up without enough, even believing there can be enough. So th this is a really rich way of exploring what it means to be, have and decide what is good enough. That's mm -hmm. it on life. Yeah. And I don't know which of these two. There are a couple of things that I want to talk about uh, first, but I see your point about adaptation and accommodation. When you first used that phrase, I thought, now what is that going to mean? And as you explain it, I'm seeing it. I'm seeing it happen to people around me where, you know, very few people can have it exactly the way they want it as they age or what they might have envisioned that they wanted. And so, they they may not be able to stay age in place. Some people want to do that. It's very, very important, and it's just not possible. And think that their happiness hinges upon the fulfillment of that desire. And then it turns out that they can't do it. So does this mean now that they're going to spend the rest of their life, uh, you know, in sadness or regret? Or, or do they do, as you suggest here, have a mentality that is uh, buoyant uh, under the circumstances? It's interesting. I just read a, a research piece that was put out uh, by the University of Quebec on aging in places. And <laughs> I like that. That's good. Aging in our, places. Our neighbors to the north are really paying attention to this because there's this backup. You know, it's kind of like I don't know. I don't know what the worst traffic stop is around St. Louis, but when traffic gets backed up, it's because you can't move forward. There's not enough space, right? So that's the visual. Well, that's what's happening now. The people who are occupying places that we assumed we could occupy, assisted living, continuing care facilities, even skilled nursing facilities and memory care, there's just no room. Because, and the rest of us are coming along. And let's face it, there's not going to be a huge investment on the part of most builders and real estate people to create larger and larger homes for aging adults. It's not feasible. So to really consider where we can live, how we can live there, and how long we can live there becomes an essential piece of looking into future 1, 5, 10, 15, 20, however many years we have left when we start doing this planning. So right. another piece to this, and it was funny because Jill and I were talking about this before you came on, the weather. People who move to Florida are now going, hmm, gee, maybe that's not where I should go, you know? And uh, Hurricanes. 
Exactly. And people moving to Arizona are going, well, there's no water here anymore. And people who live in California, we're finding places because we're burning up or drowning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And and of course, if it's not if it's not a lack of facilities, it's a lack of the money to pay for the facilities for these people. Yeah. Uh, so we, we confront limitations that may not permit us to do what was our original desire or preference. And yet you, you, you're advocating a mentality where whatever range is obtainable that we select from those happily, presumably. I think, would you say that? Absolutely. And I love how you put that. It's the foundation, I think, for making informed choices and better choices when the choices are limited. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of my dear, dear friends who is going to be 83 this year lost her house to a terrible forest fire. This was the house of her dreams. She built it. Everything was just to her specs. She was homeless at 83. Oh, my goodness. I mean, you, you can't imagine. Well, maybe you can, but when you tie it into her history, she was she was born and raised in Estonia and was a small child during World War II. She was displaced as a child by the Germans, by the Nazis, wow. displaced by the Russians, by the Soviets, came to the United States as an immigrant, did fantastically. Her golden years now are awaiting her. All she has to do is rest and relax in the home of her dreams and poof, wow. it's gone. So I'm I'm using that as a unique illustration of something that unfortunately is becoming a greater possibility now that we're really living with climate change. The places that were safe were that one place I'm going to go when I retire. We may now have to change our mindset first in order to even consider other options. And I think that's where my ideas are coming into play here is that I want to give people choice. Choice is freedom. And if you have enough time ahead of time, I'm a planner. If you have enough time ahead of time and you really give it some thought, then I think you have greater choice. And don't you think it's about being flexible as well? That's harder to change. There's, there's some people that, um, you know, it goes into this bell shaped curve sort of a thing, you know, on either end, are the super planners and the people whose heads are stuck in the ground and they'll never look up. <laughs> the I rest like of us are somewhere in the middle there. So I'm, I'm trying to, you know, work with the people in the middle, the inflexible ones, not so much. But, you know, it is almost uh, tying in with another, another one of your pillars. It's almost a spiritual mentality that allows someone to detach themselves from you know, their set of circumstances or their constraints and be able to be placid about the whole thing and to say, these are my options. You know, I'm, I'm grateful that, that I have these. It could be that I don't ha- didn't have these options. And, and mm-hmm. it, it's almost spiritual, is it not? I, I would agree. I, I caution listeners, and maybe this is because I'm living in such a, a state where, where we are very, very sensitive to the meaning of specific words. Um, Too sensitive. About a belief system. It's not about a religion per se. Right, right. What psychology has shown is that people who have strong relationships and strong belief systems tend to have better quality lives. 
they thrive. Yeah. And it doesn't doesn't really have that much to do with which God you pray to or or even who you affiliate with. It's affiliation, care, community, relationship. So I call that spiritual. Yeah, and I was probably using the word in a little larger sense, but not not much different from the way you used it, and maybe you would completely agree. Whenever I think of spiritual, I think about somebody's ability to find some meaning beyond our uh, the resemblance we bear to other life forms. I mean, the meaning that my co- my uh, Belgian Malinois has from her perspective, she's sitting here next to me <laughs> on the floor. Uh, you know, the meaning that that she finds in life is is fun. Uh, pleasure. Uh, I guess I'd include sex. She's out. She's excluded from that. But the point is, those sort of, not not to demand, I don't want to use a harsh word, but those animalistic sort of things, you know, the, the pursuit of pleasure, the avoidance of pain. Maybe I'll just say it that way. Yeah. Um, but those who see much greater meaning in life and that maybe even something to not necessarily, but generally would include the supernatural, meaning something beyond the physical world. Yeah. There's a purpose, there's an end goal in our existence, and and we can have some impact on the goodness of man or on man's goodness or whatever. That's what I mean by spiritual. Otherwise, if you just measure it in those concrete, tangible terms, then you know when those tangible things diminish, then presumably your contentment diminishes. Do you agree with that or would you push back? Uh, not in the least. I think it's very eloquently put also. The one maybe piece I would add to it is what you're describing is dimensionality. So you I didn't know, know that. Dimensionality, <laughs> yeah. okay. It, it, it gives weight and, and 3D experience to things. There's a, you know, a, a sort of direct connection between A and B causal relationships. Well, here we're getting really serious. Uh, (laughs) But the dimensionality comes from this recognition that there is something else. And depending on which philosophy or religion or belief system you want to use to explore that, the act of exploring it really gives life something extra special. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, Dr. Mary, what would you say to a person, uh, you know, an older adult who feels that maybe there's not much left for them? You know, maybe they recently lost a spouse or they're down because they did not accomplish what they wanted in life when they were young. They don't feel like they were successful. And, and, you know, they really have this negative attitude. Uh, How would you get them out of that? It's a great question, Jill, and I wouldn't get them out of that. What I would do would be to literally sit down on the curb next to them and just explore with them what it is that brought them to that conclusion. Because that's a conclusion. Sure. It's action. It's a, I don't want to go on anymore with my life. Why? Well, my husband just died. I, I lost my husband 14 years ago. I am so familiar with that place of so you can relate this without with any sense of why bother anymore the one thing in my life that brought me every single time joy was no longer there and i had to sit down with myself and through the help of some wonderful folks at hospice and other therapists and friends 
who didn't try and make me happy or get me out of my grief. They gave me space and permission to feel the feelings deeply. To grieve. While being held and not falling through the cracks. Uh, What is a greater threat to the quality of life for aging adults in this country is loneliness. Yeah. To the conclusion that nobody cares. And that, that actually has physiological consequences. That will slow your brain down. It will increase and it, it will decrease your immune system from acting effectively and will increase the likelihood of you becoming ill. I certainly believe that. I do too. Yeah. And you know, it just struck me as you were describing this, um, a little bit of background our listeners may not know is that uh, you had a clinical practice uh, and you uh, transitioned from that into doing a consultancy. But I imagine those years when you had a clinical practice, you probably developed strategies that were pretty reliable for dealing with somebody similar to you, to what Jill just described and that you described is an older person who has has lost their interest in life, maybe due to grief. And and then as a clinical professional, it was in, maybe from their perspective, it was your job to to fix that. But you can't you don't have the ability unilaterally to fix that, do you? And, and again, I'm, I'm paying particular attention to the language. It's not a problem that needs to be fixed. Our culture holds it that way. Our mm. society, sure. We have sure. a very, very low tolerance for other people's distress. And when somebody is crying, sadness, grief, loss, anger, you know, all of those things, most of us just want to push back because it's, it's very uncomfortable. People say, I don't know what to say to that grieving person. You can say, tell me more. If you feel that you can be in that presence and listen to them talk about that, you can say, I don't think I can help you right now, but let me see if I can connect you to somebody who can listen to you. Have you thought about hospice? Have you thought about, you know, whatever spiritual connection? I don't want to make too many specific ideas here because that's the problem solving. Again, I'm emphasizing this because we go to problem solving, not to fix the problem, but to make ourselves feel better. And fortunately, it also solves problems. But when we're talking about this kind of psychological distress, it's like with an infant who is crying and you don't really quite know why. So you try a lot of different things until they calm down and they stop crying. And then the conclusion that's reached is, well, that well, I'll do that again because that worked last time. The difference with working with someone who is got life experience and is older, when the moment arises, I will tell them, yes, this is uncomfortable what you're feeling. I totally get that you want this experience to end as soon as possible. And you've survive something similar to this. You already have a track record. We just have to wait till you catch your breath, your emotional breath, so that we can move forward. Now, that's going to be different for everybody. For some people, it's going to be maybe months. For other people, it may be years. So again, I just invite those of us who are working with and and 
see someone else who is in distress, we may not be working with them on a professional level, to just ask ourselves, is this my distress at somebody else's being upset? And if so, what do I need to do to take care of myself? Mm -hmm. Or can I just reach out, be open-hearted, and just say, tell me more? So um, it sounds like, though, that that there's not a proactive role. I hate that word, but a proactive role. And it sounds like you are simply providing solace as they work through this themselves. Is that is that? Yeah, I'm, I'm appreciating you keep coming back to this. So I, I let me let me get more specific. If if there is someone that if this is a person, you know, perhaps a family member or a close friend, then I would spend time with them. I would make sure that they know I'm available when they feel like talking. Okay. If it is someone that is a little bit less connected to you, I would encourage them to call local therapy services or hospice services. I would not be making a recommendation for medication because that tends to involve having to go through all kinds of poking and prodding and may not be the best thing you can do to help somebody in a grieving process. With that said, making sure they have good, nutritious food available. I mean, there is really nothing better than chicken soup. I'm <laughs> So for the soul. Um, yes. When when they're ready and able, maybe getting out and going for a, a short walk. If they have pets, offering to take care of maybe some of the tasks that might be burdensome to them or fatigue producing, like maybe taking a dog to the vet or going shopping or things like that. But allowing them to spend to animals are some of the best healers on this planet. Oh my goodness! Oh, I don't that. charge anything. I'm convinced to that. I know. Amen. I love my two dogs. And they, yeah. they're they so sensitive to our needs. They seem to sense when we're down or upset, and they just come to you, and they're there. So Exactly. And and they're not problem-solving, are they? No, they are not. So let's say that, that, that I, certainly I'm persuaded, I'm sure Jill is, that, that these five pillars make sense. How do you teach this? So, I mean, do you do seminars? How do you, you know, get somebody who maybe has not lived their life according to these priorities or this perspective, and here they are 60, 65 years old, and they're about to retire. How do you get them to embrace these five pillars? I do podcasts. <laughs> that, it's amazing what podcasts will I do. Gotta love the podcast. <laughs> So, you know, here, here's the short answer is I have a website. I invite people to go to fivepillarsofaging.com. I do have courses and workshops that you can uh, download there. Because of COVID, we've not been doing anything in person, and that's been making things a bit challenging, as I'm sure you can appreciate. Right. I have a short six-week course of uh, community group building um, called No Time Like the Present, where we spend six weeks just talking about all of these very practical issues with the idea that we learn how to have a conversation about these things, develop some camaraderie and community, and then have a plan for moving forward and, and going out. The piece though, that just strikes me as so amazing is it's hard to sell this. 
And I, I use that word sell purposely. It's like, I just expect everybody would want to do this, but apparently not. And we do live in a culture that really makes us invisible. I say us, I'm older people, and that's not a chronologic state. It's a state of mind. Mm-hmm. Older people are just not seen. And the thought of taking a course to learn about how to age better and age well is not something the majority of people are looking to do. They're looking for how to lose weight. They're looking for how to get rid of wrinkles. They're looking for how to go on the next cruise. What I am really offering people is a very kind mirror that when you look in it, will have at the bottom as a little bit of added pleasure, some points for moving forward into this next period of your life. Um, you know, we don't have an instruction book on how to age in the 21st century. No, we and don't. <laughs> like aging has ever been before. So we're making this up, which is actually where some of my stand-up and my improv work comes from and really helps me with because I understand what it takes to say yes to the unknown. And that's really what I'm offering people is a way to learn how to say yes to what lies in front of you and may be very scary for some, but might be the most exciting time of your life. Yeah, it's it's like getting people to plan or to do things that that you know are good to do, but often people postpone it because it's not tangible and it's not pressing. Yeah. But yeah, if you could get people to embrace these foundational things, it would affect the perspective on everything else. So I sure believe that. <laughs> and getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah. Trying something new. Yeah. Uh, and you have a comfort zone that is a well-paved road that now has been paid for some period of time. Yeah. So it's to get somebody to go off of that road is... is Yeah, not being set in their ways. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, there's, there's the law of physics that says a, an object in motion stays in motion and an object at rest stays at rest. Right. What we've done here in terms of aging is we set in motion this notion that you get to 65 and you retire. So you're in motion and then you stop. We have to shift that fundamentally. We have to say, we're going to stay in motion. And if I can, I'm going to decide where that motion leads me. I wish it was clearer. I wish I wish I could just say, you know, here, take this gummy and you'll weigh 110 pounds. You'll look 60 years younger. You'll find the man, woman of your dreams. Um, and you'll live until 90 and fall dead in your sleep. That isn't what happens to people. What, uh, Eddie, even me, and here I am a professional. What happened to me? My mother, God bless her, lived in our family home until she was 88 years old. Wow. And then... One day I got a phone call and um, a very dear friend of hers who had been doing, she lived 3000 miles away. So she, this very dear friend had been really keeping an eye on my mother for some time, called me up and said, your mom's fallen again. We need to get her someplace to stay. 
we went from 72 hours from a home she'd lived in, been in our family for three generations, to an assisted living facility in the same town. Wow. Mm. Nobody should have to do that in 72 hours. You know? It, right. It, but it wasn't good for my mother. It wasn't good for me. Um, it's and, crisis mode that you were yeah. in. Yeah. Yeah. But that's what tends to happen when we live in a culture that doesn't value what being older means. Yeah, very true. There's there's a lot of research being done right now, especially in England and the UK, about how to make sure that older adults can be reintegrated into the workforce. And there's, there's lots of stereotypes out there. You know, us older people, we don't know how to use cell phones and <laughs> can't figure out our way around computers and all the rest. Well, that is bull hockey. And what seems to get in the way is that we don't know how to communicate with one another. And we end up preferring our own tribes. And as long as we continue to stay separated, there isn't the entree. So one of the most important things that is being done both in the UK and here in the United States now is this wonderful combining intergenerational opportunities to spend time together. And I, one of the best programs, actually it started on the West Coast, but I think it's moving around, is where college students move in with single older women or men. Really? Um, I love that. Yeah. And it's not like they're, you know, doing anything other than just living together. The, the older person gets the opportunity to have a little bit of rent. The younger person gets the opportunity to have a grandmother, grandfather figure around. The stories that are coming out of that are just so heartwarming uh, about this connection. It addresses loneliness. It addresses yeah. this notion that um, people have to be property rich, but cash poor. It addresses the fears of not having enough. And it provides just a welcome opportunity for us to get to know each other. Yeah, that is an, it's an interesting idea. And I do think that it's, it's not healthy for, for older people to decide to just be with older people because it's easier. I mean, it's, it's less strenuous. It's less demanding. Yeah. You don't have to learn as many new things. You don't have to tolerate ideas that seem repugnant to you or shocking, but, uh, you know, but to live in that bubble, I, I, as you suggest, I, I think it definitely makes life less full and it allows you to, doesn't it allow you to deteriorate faster? <laughs> well, you're just, you're just a bounty full of happy thoughts. Aren't you? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, let's face it. You're not, you're not kidding. Move to the villages and decline. Okay. Uh, you know, I, I call them golden ghettos. Golden, uh, golden ghetto. Was the guy who started this uh, <laughs> a real estate developer in Arizona. The villages? 1960s. Yeah. And brilliant, brilliant developer. Must have been. But one that set this standard up of this sort of exclusivity based on age. And I, I grew up with my grandparents. Um, I, I, my grandfather um, unfortunately had a stroke when he was in his, oh, probably mid-60s. Wow. 
And my mother was an only child. I'm an only child. Um, my grandmother had had died of uh, diabetes um, many years before that. But he, my grandfather was living independently. Anyway, this was back in the early 1960s. And no questions asked. We just took care of him. Right. He lived independently. We right. brought him. In That's what you did back then. Weekends, you know, so I, I learned by caring for my grandfather in ways that today we would probably call child protective services. But I learned respect. I learned um, honesty. I learned decency. I learned mm -hmm. patience. I mean, all of these extraordinary opportunities from a man who was an extraordinary man who shared his life openly, full heartedly and talk about a legacy of values. You know, I mean, I, I really do credit him with much of how I am today in this world because of what he taught me growing up like that. We don't have those opportunities anymore. Unfortunately, and, yeah. You know, because of the segmentation by age. And what we lose out on there is not just the transmission of values, but we, we lose out on wisdom. Mm -hmm. You know, and people think, oh, my God, I just discovered this. Well, no, actually, you know, us old farts have been talking about it for years. And, oh, hi there. You know, if you paid attention to us, we would have told you. Uh, so mm -hmm. it. I'm on a rant here with these things. But my point is that we need to redefine community, not based on age, but based on need. So we see a lot of kids that are being raised by grandmothers now because their right. parents are incarcerated or involved with substances or just aren't available because they're having to work two and three jobs. Well, wouldn't it be nice if we had, you know, a community of grandmas that could come together and take care of kids and have the kids take care of the grandmas? I mean, the possibilities really are endless if we just give ourselves permission to think outside of the box. Yeah, yeah, I I know that was um, that was a longstanding tradition where you'd have three and four generations living in a house yeah. together. It was a common thing and and each benefiting from the other in many different ways. But yeah, I, I, it's interesting that you mentioned the villages because it is, it's this city. I mean, it is a huge area and Florida is the one I'm more familiar with, but Florida has this city, the population of which must be hundreds of thousands. And, uh, and it's all older people. And these are people who've decided, look, you know, I don't want to be around uh, these social networkers and things that yeah. seem so foreign and bizarre. And I get that. I mean, I see things that seem very different and wrong to me. But but for me to insulate myself from things like that that challenge me, it just doesn't seem healthy. And I think you agree with that. Absolutely. And we've limited choice. Again, go back to my choice here. So when you look at aging, now, in terms of our housing options, you stay in the house where if you have a house where you raise your children, you downsize when you get empty nest. You then either move into some 55 and older community so that you don't have to be bothered by all of those things that you're talking about. Or because of declining functioning, um, you move into some form of assisted living. And then you go from there either to a skilled nursing facility or continuing care if you have enough money, um, to death. No, that's only four choices. We're living 30 years. I mean, that it just doesn't make sense to me to limit 
my life as as energetic and cognitively capable as I am right now to those four choices. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's um, food for thought. It definitely is. Yeah. So, I, you know, I, I enjoyed this conversation, and I want people to, uh, to check out the website. We're going to post that, Justin. So we'll have your website posted uh, with, uh, with this link. Uh, but anyway, I tell you, Dr. Mary, I'm sure that you were very helpful to your patients over the many years and those uh, with whom you consult now. Uh, hopefully you, we can have you on here again sometime in the future. I can't tell you. I would be so delighted to come back and chat more with you. And next time I'll do more listening. <laughs> no, no, we no. love you talking. Yes, yeah. That. So uh, we look forward to visiting with you again. Uh, this has been another episode of Life's Third Act. Till next time, take care. You've been listening to Life's Third Act, a podcast for thriving in retirement. Sponsored by Tucker Allen, your estate and elder law advisors. Each week, we discuss topics and answer questions to help you better plan for your future. For more information, visit TuckerAllen.com. Subscribe and listen again next week for another edition of Life's Third Act. The choice of a lawyer is an important decision and should not be based solely on advertisements.